0: Genesis chapter 39, verses uh, 7 to 23. Genesis 39, 7 to 23. And if you want to be prepared, Psalm 105, 16 to 22. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house... She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And Psalm 105, 16 to 22. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. If you would, pray with me before Pastor Paul comes. God, your word is miraculous and powerful, and it is very old from the foundations of the earth and before that. God, your word is filled with power, and your Holy Spirit is here. God, please work among us and embed your word and your truths in our hearts, God, that we would be changed. God, give us hearts and wisdom to surrender to you, to walk with you, to obey your commandments, to love you. God, I ask this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.
1: As we turn uh, to the Word of God, uh, last week I had hoped to cover most of Genesis 39 and uh, just got uh, waylaid by what I thought we needed to um, hear. And if you're visiting with us today, we're in a series, we're looking at um, the generations of Jacob, which starts at Genesis 39, but um, primarily focuses on one of his sons, Joseph. And uh, we've been looking at the, we looked at the first six verses of chapter Uh, 39 as a sort of a theological foundation of the fact that God is over everything in our lives, that God is the one that grants us success, that it's God's presence with us that guides and directs us, that our world is blessed through the the presence and the work of the people of God. And so we laid sort of that foundation so that then we could see how the theological reality of our relationship with God works itself out in the everyday life. Um, realities of our life in our experiences and so that's where we jump to here one of the things that i think is important to note is that and i think it could be one there's others but one of the main themes of chapter 39 is simply god was with him god was with joseph through all the the things that he would go through god was with him and so you see that right away in uh, verse 39 that it says in verse 2 the lord was with him and then you jump to the end of the chapter and You read in verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. You jump to Acts chapter 7 and you read Stephen's summary of the the journeyings of Israel. And he summarizes the sort of the life of Joseph by simply saying the Lord was with him. And so the scripture is wanting to make a point to us that the Lord was with him. And as the Lord was with him, so the Lord is with us. Uh, One of the grids through which we are looking at these chapters also is the Grid of providence providence is the guiding governing hand of god in everything that takes place in this universe all events all decisions of every human being of every animal of every storm of everything that takes place god is guiding and directing it one individual put it this way he says despite the malicious intentions of the brothers or the manipulations of a cons- of a scorned seductress the Lord's purposes for Joseph prevail. I'll just stop there for a moment. The Lord's purpose was to bring Joseph alive to Egypt so that he could save his people from the famine that God was sending on the land and, in fact, the whole world. He goes on and he says, the human figures in the large biblical landscape act as free agents out of the impulses of a memorable and often fiercely assertive individuality. In other words, he's saying that in the midst of all of this, human beings, you and I, act out of our own decisions, our own responsibilities. We respond to circumstances around us out of fierce individualism. And then he says, but the actions they perform all ultimately fall into the symmetries and reoccurrences of God's sovereign designs. In other words, everything happens according to the plan and purposes of God for his glory. So the big picture was God called down a famine against the land. God was going to bring a famine. And that famine would destroy the entire food supply. And so God, knowing that he was going to bring that famine, sent ahead a man, Joseph, who would prepare not only Egypt, but the world for the coming famine. So the lord is with joseph how is he with joseph three ways the first one i'm just going to drop quickly on you and you can listen to last week's message and you pull this out a little bit more but the first way is simply the lord yahweh was with joseph in his forsakenness remember he had been sold by his brothers he had been sent to a a land that he didn't know the language he didn't know the culture he's 17 years old He's put on a pedestal much like this. He's stripped naked. He's sold to an Egyptian slave buyer. And what we're meant to grasp above all, that in the midst of his forsakenness, God was with him. That's what the text says. Yahweh was with Joseph. His relationship with God was vibrant. God was his rock and his salvation. And remember, he was 17 years old. I want you young people to know here today, and there are some of you, that God can be in a personal relationship with you, that you can know him as your savior, you can know him as your friend, you can know him as one who is faithful and will never let you go. And Joseph cultivated that personal relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel's covenant, And you can cultivate a relationship with Jesus Christ who will covenant with you to never, ever let you go and never, ever leave you alone. And this is what we see in the life of Joseph, 17 years old, and he had a living relationship with the God of this universe. The second point, which will be a much longer one, is God, or Elohim, was with Joseph in his temptation. It's helpful to just recall some of the words from Psalm 105, verse 16. After God had sent the famine on the land, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he said, until what God had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Do you feel like that sometimes in your life? God has promises that he has given us. You and I hold on to those promises. We hold on to the promise that Jesus Christ is going to return one day. And around us, people are mocking that. Around us, people are denying that. Around us, people are trying to undermine that. But we are tested to cling on to the promise, to believe that no, just as God sent his son once, he will send him another time. And in the midst of that time of waiting, we are tested. It's like that with every promise of God. In fact, Hebrews 11 is about the testing that men and women went through as God gave them a promise, but it wasn't fulfilled for them in their lifetimes. So the time between the promise given and the promise fulfilled is a time of testing. And the question is, will you and I trust the promises of God? Will we put our confidence in the ancient words that we have recorded for us in the word of the Lord? And during those times of testing, will we submit to God? Verse 6 is a a helpful verse because it gives us the context then for the rest of verse 7 to 18. And what they tell us is right away, Joseph was his mother's son. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, of Rachel, we read in the scripture that she was beautiful in form and appearance, she was a good looking lady. And of Joseph, then, we read that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He got his mother's physical looks. He got his mother's form and appearance. But as you and I know who have lived in the world in which we do live, and as if we've lived long enough, we understand more and more that good looks are not always a blessing. In fact, good looks can be a terrible curse for people as much as they can be a blessing. For Joseph, his good looks made him the object of the lustful intentions of Potiphar's wife. And as we come to realize, Joseph may have been a slave in Potiphar's house, but Potiphar's wife was a slave to her lustful heart. And while it is true that men are tempted with lust on a regular basis, it is also true that women are tempted with sexual lust on a regular basis. And we find that in the life of Potiphar's wife. Notice as, you, if, 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 as we were reading, you might have noticed this was not just a passing reality for Joseph. The particular situation of Potiphar's wife casting her eyes upon him would work itself out over a long, long period of time. It says here that Potiphar's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph. There's a we're meant to understand now there's a change of relationship that there had been just sort of a normal male female relationship but maybe as joseph began to make himself known and he began to be successful something snapped in potiphar's wife's mind and she no longer just looked at him as a slave she looked at him with lustful thoughts It was no longer a look of affection or even a look of appreciation. It was a look of lust. An Egyptian culture was no different from Canaanite culture, which is really no different from our culture. We live in sexually charged times. When sexual boundaries are being set aside rapidly, where sexual norms that we've held on for thousands of years as a culture are being thrown out the door, And sexual boundaries are being demolished on a regular basis. We think about her demand. The boldness of what she says to Joseph is startling. And you wonder, well, was it because he was a slave and he was supposed to do as he was told so she could be that forthright? Or was it because Potiphar's wife was used to getting what she wanted? After all, she was pretty high up in Egyptian culture and her husband was, after all, the captain of the guard and nobody ever said no to her. We don't really know. The text doesn't tell us. All we know is the bluntness of it just catches us off guard. Lie with me. And that phrase is used a number of times in verse chapter 39. There was an initial onslaught which we read right away in verse 7, simply, just lie with me. This was the initial point of temptation. And what I find fascinating in the text is, all of a sudden, with this initial point of temptation, this is where Joseph takes his stand. It's also fascinating to me, before we look at how he takes his stand, that Joseph has been silent. You you read the text so far and we don't hear a thing about Joseph. We don't even know how Joseph feels. The only other words that we have heard of Joseph to this point is when his father sends him off to his brothers and he says, I want you to go, and his response was simply, here I am. The rest of the time we know nothing about what's going on in his head, what's going on in his heart, how he's reacting. He just is silent. All of a sudden now here, Moses records the words of Joseph. That should tell us that this is important. That when we, Joseph is speaking here now, that God wants us to hear something about what makes this young man tick. And these are words that not only reveal his heart, but words that reveal his principles in life. And the first thing is he say, I can't betray my master. The second thing he says is, I can't betray your marriage. And the third thing he says is, I can't betray our God. And I'll come back to that in a minute, our God. And after the initial onslaught was this continual pressure. It says day after day, she tried to get Joseph to lie with her. She tried all her scheming. She tried all her seduction. This was a regular part of her day and of Joseph's day. It likely became a game for her where day after day, she tried to seduce Joseph. And then there was the moment of crisis where the text tells us all of a sudden all the servants were out of the house. The house is empty, and Joseph is alone with Potiphar's wife. The point of these verses, I think, is that we ought to think that God was with Joseph in his temptation, or we might put it another way and say that Joseph brings God into his temptation. And we'll explain that in just a moment. And then the final point is that Joseph fled. He left his coat, and he left the house. Let's back up just a little bit now. Think this through with me. Joseph says no when he has every reason to say yes. Joseph says no when he has every season, reason to say yes. Think about the, the, the wiles of Satan that we looked at at the beginning of the year and how often Satan tries to um, uh, get us to forget the holiness of God and he, and he gets us to talk to ourselves in ways that are sinful, and ways that will betray God's work in our life. Did God really say and so, Joseph had all this opportunity, and yet he says no. There's the argument from opportunity. Joseph could have said to himself, Well, look, the Lord has really blessed me. And this is just another opportunity. It's just another blessing. Look at the success that has come to myself in my master's house. Certainly, this is a blessing that God has provided for me. It's a providence of God. Think about the argument from respect. After all, Potiphar's wife is the one in authority over me. She is the mistress of the house. I need to respect her. I need to submit to her. I need to do what she asks. How could I deny what she asks because I'm supposed to respect her? Or there's the argument of freedom. Many of us have been trapped by this argument. My master has not held anything back from me except you because you are his wife. But we say to ourselves, well, really, real freedom has to have no boundaries. To really, really be free in life, to truly be free, we have to be able to do as we want to do. After all, we're two consenting adults. What can be wrong with this? That's true freedom. There's the argument from need. Oh, look at Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's never home, he's always away on official business. He's always traveling all over Egypt, dealing with pharaoh's stuff and look she starved for attention and she starved for affection clearly potiphar doesn't care about her he's rarely home he never takes her with him surely he's got to be ignoring her what kind of needs should she have clearly she has a need with her and joseph then could have said and what about me i've not had any female contact since i left home i've never had a hug i've never had a gentle hand on my shoulder i have needs too after all What about the argument of rebellion? How many of us have gone down the road of sin out of rebellion? I'll get back at my family. I'll get back at them for what they did to me. This was, after all, Esau's argument for marrying Canaanite women. He heard, he overheard his mother and father talking about getting a wife for his brother, and they said, don't get her one from the Canaanites, or don't get him a wife from the Canaanites that could never be, that could be the worst thing ever and what did Esau do? he saw that he bug- it bugged his mom and dad and he went out and he got himself Canaanite wives that's the argument from rebellion and some of us are just dumb enough to think that that is a good thing to do there's the argument from security look at how things are going for me I've climbed the slave ladder. There's no more rungs in the claim la- in the slave ladder for me to climb anymore. What would I do without this job? If I refuse her, she's going to be angry, and then I'm possibly going to lose my position. And look at how some of the other trades slaves are treated, the lesser slaves, and look at how some of the slaves who haven't done what they've been asked, look at what they've suffered. Do I want to lose everything that I've accomplished, everything that God has blessed me? Do I want to give it all up because I won't say yes to my master's seductions? Instead, Joseph took his stand on principle, on an abiding personal conviction that he had, and he said to her out loud, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Do you see how the presence of God was with him in his temptation? Do you see how God was in his heart and God was in his head that as this temptation came to initially and then day after day, it was is what filtered around in his head was the presence of God. God was with him. To be sure, he didn't want to betray the trust of his master. He didn't want to, 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 to break the second commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. He knew that his master had trusted so much to him. How could he betray that trust? To be sure, he had an understanding of sin. And we really need to wrestle this one through. You need to go through and think this one on your own. But he says, how could I do this great wickedness? Is this how you think about sin? We have ways of categorizing sins, don't we? Some sins are up here and other sins are down here. Do you know that there is no category of sin? That even a white lie is a great wickedness? That even a, an envious thought is a great wickedness? That even an evil intent and an evil motive is a great wickedness? As is murder a great wickedness? See, Joseph understood that to sin was to sin against a holy God. And that any sin, anything that broke the law of God was a great wickedness. Do you remember, David, when he, uh, Psalm 51 recounts the, the David's reaction after uh, he, he confessed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband. He pleads with God for grace. He asks God to blot out his sin. And then he says this remarkable line, against you and you alone have I sinned. You need to wrestle that one around in your head. There is a truth that when we sin, it impacts relationships with one another. But ultimately, our sin is not against a man or a woman. Whatever that sin might be, our sin is against God and God alone and we have to understand the evilness of sin. I've got two books on my shelves at home. One of them is called The Evil of Evils. The other is called The Plague of Plagues. There is nothing more evil than sin. There is no plague more terrifying than the plague of sin. And you might say, well, how did Joseph cultivate this? Well, we don't know exactly other than how did Adam or how did Cain and Abel know what a right um, sacrifice was and a wrong one was god obviously had told them how do we know that the people around jo- noah's generation were so wicked that every thought and attention of their heart was wicked and noah preached righteousness to them obviously god had revealed his standards to them how did Na- uh, abraham know that um that when he put his faith in God's promise that that was counted to him as righteousness surely the destruction of Sodom Gomorrah was well known that that was a grievous sin and so the standards of God were made known when Abraham lied about his uh, wife being his sister he did it because he was worried about the land of Abimelech and that there was no fear of God in that land so clearly God had communicated his laws it had been in their heart it had been in their conscience he had communicated in some way and so Joseph had cultivated this very clear awareness of the evil and the wickedness of sin. But above all, he had a deep, deep love for God. This is really the first commandment, isn't there? Love the Lord your God most of the time. Love the Lord your God when you think about it. No, no. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and muchness. Everything else. If if you can't think of everything in heart, mind, and soul, then everything else as well. Love God with everything. It matters that the name Elohim is used here. The name that's used in in, in, in the first six verses of chapter 39 and then from verse uh, 21 on is the name Yahweh. Remember, it's the covenant name of God. It's the relationship name of God. It's the, Yahweh is the one who reveals God. Well, Elohim is the God above all gods. Elohim is the creator God. In the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this God is the God of everyone yahweh is the god of the covenant people of god elohim is the god of everything and everyone he has created and so when joseph says how could i do this great wickedness against god he's drawing potiphar's wife into that and he's reminding her that of all the gods of egypt there is one god that is above them all and you will sin against him by this action Above all the gods in the world, there is only one God who we must give an account. And so for many of us here today, we are in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have this abiding sense of this relationship with God. But if you're here today and you don't know God and you don't have a relationship with God, you still are under God. Yahweh and Elohim are just two different names for the same God. But you still are responsible to that God to walk according to his commands and to obey him. Joseph had come to understand how he was accountable to God. And he had developed such a love for God and such an aversion to grieving the heart of God that he had to say no. You see, what was in in Joseph's heart was how can I grieve God? How can I do this thing and grieve my God? Joseph knew that he was never alone because God was with him. And this meant that God was in the temptation and God would walk with him in that temptation. Do we love God this way, loved ones? Do you see how God is with you in your temptation? Do you understand this reality that that, that God doesn't stay on your bedside table when you have your devotions and you leave for the day and go to school or go to work. God doesn't sort of stay here in the church and when we all leave here he kind of goes up to the rafters and we're on our own for the next six days. God goes with us every second of our lives every step that we take God is with us and we resist temptation to the degree that we are aware of the presence of God in us and with us all the time. You see, ultimately, what gives us the power in temptation is not the fear of punishment, although that is part of sin, and it is certainly not the fear of discovery, although that is part of the reality of uh, of temptation, but the thing that keeps us from sin is that we can't stand to grieve the heart of God. Probably every one of us here has been afraid because we've sinned. Probably every one of us here has been worried that we'll be exposed because of sin, but Have you ever been crushed because you realized that you broke God's heart by your sin? That you betrayed his love for you? See, which is a greater motivator for righteousness in life? Fear or love? Perfect love casts out all fear. If we cultivate this, this love for God, this abiding sense of God's love for us and our love for God, we will increasingly know the presence of God even in our temptation. And so this text tells us about the presence of God with Joseph in his forsakenness. That tells us about the presence of God with him in his temptation. But it also tells us that the Lord Yahweh was with Joseph in his disappointments. Potiphar's wife was now a victim of her lust and she was trapped. So first she sets out to deceive the servants. It's bizarre as you work this through. But then she deceives her husband and two things stand out here. The first one is that she plays the race card. All of a sudden it is this Hebrew that has racial overtones and You know, all Hebrews are like this, and we ought to be afraid of all Hebrews. And in fact, that's what she says. She stereotypes these uh, Hebrews. And the Egyptians, we know, didn't like Hebrews. In fact, when Joseph's brothers comes and they prepare a meal, the Egyptians and the Hebrews couldn't eat together because the Hebrews were abhorrent to the Egyptians. And so she stokes the racial fears and she says, well, look at, no, he's, did, he's tried this with me. Well, look at what he's going to do for you. You're next. If he's come for me, he's going to come for you. We ought to be afraid of this guy. And then she blames her husband. Twice, she says, it's the result of Potiphar because of the Hebrew slave you brought to us. Isn't that what we always do? always looking for somebody to blame rather than take responsibility for our own actions and then it says "And potiphar was furious i want to play a game with you for a moment i want you to participate you don't have to tell me what goes through your mind but the scripture is it just says in potiphar was furious so i want you to add the word with blank so in potiphar was furious with so go through your head what was potiphar furious with you see, the text is deliberately ambiguous, or uh, there's deliberate ambiguity in the text here. The scripture is amazing because it invites us, if we stop and slow down a little bit, we. Well, what was he mad about? And some of us probably filled in right away with Joseph. He's furious with Joseph. He wanted to throttle him. How could he? How could he, who had trusted so much to how he had brought into his household they had put him over everything how could he but maybe he was furious with his household slaves where were they how would they ever leave my wife in a house all by herself why didn't they come to her rescue maybe the best answer is he was furious with his wife how could she Maybe he just knew enough about his wife and her behavior. Maybe he understood what Egyptian society was like. Maybe he knew that she had done this kind of thing before, and now he had jeopardized all the blessing that has come to his house and his fields because of Joseph. Everything that had come to him was now thrown aside because of his wife's false accusation. Maybe it was he was furious at what he would lose. He knew what Joseph had brought to his house. He knew the blessing. He knew the prosperity. He knew all that had come to him. Maybe he was just ripped that now all that was in jeopardy. You see, one of the things that makes me hesitate, although there's no proof for this, but one of the things that makes me hesitate that Joseph is the right fill-in-the-blank is because if that's the case, Potterfield would have slaughtered him on the spot. He was, after all, the captain of the guard. That was what he did. He killed people. And if he had the slightest sort of real sense that Joseph had done this to his wife, there would have been no hesitation in him whatsoever. He would have killed her or killed him. But instead, he puts him in his prison, and it is Potiphar's prison, after all, because Potiphar is the captain of the guard. The ambiguity at least explains why joseph's life is saved so once again let's turn our hearts to joseph what do you think must have been going on in his head at that point just at the time when things are looking great he was safe and secure he had a roof over his head just to the point when he had just demonstrated his faithfulness to and love to god after all he had been through the hatred and the jealousy of his brothers, left for dead, then sold as a slave, brought down to Egypt, a place he didn't know or understand, learned a new language, worked his way up the slave ladder to the top of that ladder, and now this false accusation and terror courses through every inch of his body once again as he sees Potiphar furious and he's thrown into jail. I think this through with me for just a little bit more. You see, we gloss over the next few months and possibly even years of joseph's life in fact the text seems to invite us to do that doesn't it it says but the lord was with joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and the keeper of the prison put joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison whatever was done there he was the one who did it and we think wow boy he landed on his feet didn't he like what a what lucky guy all of a sudden he's in charge of the prison but stop for a moment and just think about the hardships and the brutality that the first few months in prison must have been for Joseph. After all, do we really think that the very day or the next day that he was thrown into prison, the head of the prison said, ha, there's a guy I'm putting in charge of everything? Of course not. In fact, the psalmist says his feet were hurt with fetters and his neck was put in a collar of iron. See, God doesn't remove Joseph from suffering, but he was with him in the midst of his suffering. And only after a substantial period of time, years, was Joseph elevated even to be in charge of the prison. Remember, Joseph was 17 years when he was sold. I suspect chapter 39 covers at least 11 years, if not 13 years, because Joseph was 13 years uh, or it had been. He was 30 years old when he was finally brought out of jail and raised into Pharaoh's court. So he has 13 years in Potiphar's house and in Potiphar's jail. I suspect that he was in Potiphar's house maybe 8 to 10 years and he was in jail for 3 to 5 years because after he had interpreted the dreams of the butcher and the baker, it says, and he was two full years in jail until he was called out of there. So he was in jail at least 3 to 5 years why think about the time frame why stop and wrestle with verse 21 to 23 well i think we need to wrestle with it because sometimes the difficulty we live with and the disappointment we face lasts for a long time some of you here today know that don't you Uh, that that god hasn't in an instant delivered you from the tough things in life he hasn't spared you from disappointment after disappointment. In fact, some of you thought you'd just made it and, and you finally after a tough time and everything was fine and then you're slammed again. I think there's something beautiful about the very first word in verse 21, but. This is one of the great buts of the Bible, but the Lord was with him. I, I think there's, the only but that I can think of as greater is Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 where the first three verses talk about how we're dead in our sins and our trespasses, how we're slaves to sin, how we follow the prince of the powers of darkness. And then all of a sudden it says, but God, who is rich in mercy. And so all of a sudden, we see that Yahweh was with him. It's the theme of this chapter. And the next point is what I wanted to spend the whole morning on and the whole day on, actually this week. Yahweh showed him loving kindness. I spent hours this last week just reading. It's used hundreds of times in the Bible. The loving kindness of God or the steadfast faithfulness of God, the never-ending faithfulness of God. It's It's a particular word which describes a particular way of God as God responds to those who are his covenant children, how he never departs from them, how he never leaves them, how he will never fail them, how his promises will never end, that we experience again and again the loving kindness of the Lord. The loving kindness of the Lord endures forever and ever. God shows us his loving kindness. And notice, that's not used in the first six verses. This is an added one. So God was with him, and God showed him loving kindness. For maybe up to five years, God just reaffirmed again and again and again his kindness on Joseph. And then it says Yahweh granted him favor. Some of you today need to hear this. You have suffered blow after blow, of, I said, disappointment after disappointment. You can't remember what relief looks like. Joseph suffered repeated calamities. He faced persistent and ongoing trials. He just began to hope, and then it was obliterated by clouds. Yet God was with him. And you need to know that the disappointments you might be going through today are not because God has abandoned you. Isn't that how we think sometimes? Oh, I'm going through tough times. It must be because of my sin. Or I'm going through tough times. It must be because I haven't read the Bible enough or I haven't prayed enough. I'm going through disappointment because God has somehow left for bigger fish that he has to deal with. No. It says that God was with Joseph throughout those three years. Helmut is a was a German theologian who lectured from time to time in the States. And Tilek, recounts uh, on an instant, an instant that he was brought over to do some lectures in the States, and he came over by ship, and also he returned by ship. And he happened to notice on both journeys, both on the one coming to the States and then on going back to Europe, that there was a dog on board each time. He said the first time that the dog was on board, it was a large shepherd dog, and he says he was in abject misery. You see, nothing was familiar to this dog, and there was no familiar sights and sounds and smells of fields and streams and woods. There was just a strange smell of wood and ocean air and all that comes with those kind of ships. Teelicky said that he tried to speak kindly to this dog and to encourage him and so on, but it was to no avail. This dog was just utterly and dreadfully miserable. He said you could see it in his eyes. The reason he was in miserable in part was because his master was not on the ship. His master had flown over to the States, but he had sent his dog ahead on the ship. And somehow, Tielic, he said that he couldn't get across to this dog, that the fellow that walked around in the blue clothes with the stripes on his arm somehow knew the laws of navigation and that the ship on which they were traveling was finally going to reach its destination. And this whole horrible existence that this dog was enduring would certainly come to an end. And he says there was no way that he could get across to this dog that this was true. And his master wasn't there with him. Then Tilek, he says, he was on his way home to Europe. And he says there was another dog on the ship. He described it as a degenerated sort of canine species short wobbly legs and so on I think we call those dogs puntable (laughs) it was not a very attractive dog he goes on to say but he noticed that it was on the whole much more contented and once in a while it would get that sort of look in its eyes wondering why it was in such a strange place and so on but you see his mistress was with him It was a little girl, and this dog could look up to this little girl, and he could almost say in Tieleki's words, Ah, yes, this is a horrible thing. But you, after all, are a higher being, and you yourself would not have let yourself in for this experience if it were not at some point come to an end, and you would return us to a point of right smells and so on. You see, Tieleki's point was simply that what makes all the difference to the dog's And dare we say to the saints of God was the presence of one who mattered. See, that's what Genesis chapter 39 is trying to tell us. What makes all the difference in the world in life is the presence of the one who matters. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Don't let the ongoing disappointments and difficulties of your life cause you to lose sight of the presence of God, of the steadfast love of God, and of the favor of God in your life. You see, what was written about Joseph is written for you and I. That Yahweh is with us. There is no depth too deep. There is no distance too far. There is no darkness too dense. Where you or I are not where you or I will not be led by the presence of God. What does the psalmist say? Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me is night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as light to you. Some of you may be familiar with Isaiah, but now thus says the Lord who created you. Again, the doctrine of creation matters. You are not some random hunk of stuff that grew out of nothing and became something. You are created by God in the image of God. And that's why Isaiah can say, Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will cheer you on. No, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fires, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes. You are honored, and I love you. God, the presence of the Lord, hey. The presence of the Lord will never forsake us. The presence of the Lord will never leave us in temptation. And the presence of the Lord will never leave us alone in disappointment. Father, thank you for your word. What an amazing gift these ancient words are. Ever true. 3,000 plus years old, and yet they have a ring of truth today that is as fresh as they were the day they were first penned by Moses. Father, would you remind us of the amazing reality of the abiding presence of God with us. That no matter what we face, no matter how intense, no matter how deep you are with us, and you experience our disappointments and you walk through the deep waters with us, Oh, Father, help us to cultivate this truth in our hearts and minds. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.